Well, I'm back with another episode of Real Life Broadcasting, and I'm your host, Irvish, and welcome again. Well, today on our broadcast, we are going to have uh, a guest, uh, and it a, was a pre-recorded uh, uh, message out of the uh, Gospel of John, and it was the 13th chapter, and uh, uh, Carl uh, Popplewriter uh, expounds on the entire chapter and a uh, very, very good lesson. So without further ado, I am just going to turn it over to Carl and uh, let us continue with our broadcast. Well, good morning, young man. Okay. Uh, Irv calls me that all the time. So. <laughs> and I can say that because he doesn't hear me. So, <laughs> Oh, he can hear me. He's got his headphones on. <laughs> so when Nate opened the, uh, the worship time earlier, the remembrance service, he talked about um, the preciousness of the Lord to us and how we hold him precious. And I have to say one of the, the things that um, I appreciate the Lord for and um, consider him so precious for is that he brought us here. And when I was in California again for a couple of weeks recently, um, besides missing Margaret and my cat, um, it just missed being here with uh, in fellowship with all of you. So when I flew back, finally, I uh, was getting on the plane in Minneapolis to take the little puddle jumper down to Rochester where Margaret was going to pick me up. And I had to stand up because I was in the aisle seat and there was an empty seat next to me that was to be taken by a young man. And kind of a tall, lanky young man, a true young man. And uh, as he sat down, he said something under his breath, and I couldn't hear him. So as I was sitting down, I said, I beg your pardon, did you say something? He says, oofda. And I thought, that's perfect. I, I'm home. Oofda. I was greeted with an oofda from... I don't know what that means, but sometimes I'm told it's the only thing that's worth saying. It's just oofda. So, <laughs> so today we're going to be in John and chapter 13. And uh, this is the beginning of what theologians will call the upper room discourse. And uh, I think more to the point for John's gospel is that John has um, been summarizing throughout his gospel about how Jesus was bringing fullness to all of the feasts of Israel, including uh, Hanukkah. He, he was, uh, is the fullness of Passover and unleavened bread and the first fruits of Feast of Trumpets, of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and of Sukkot, 
the uh, restoration of all things at the uh, the feast of the tabernacles or booths so all things um have come together and now john is inching us closer um in his closing arguments to uh, the final hours and jesus is going to give his private teaching to prepare his inner circle for leadership in the church which was to begin a short time later and uh, so as we start turning to this these final hours let's open in a word of prayer heavenly father we praise you for the gift of salvation you've given us in your son we praise you for these words that john has recorded for us through your holy spirit we pray that you would help us to take Jesus's last words to his inner circle, his closest friends and disciples, to heart ourselves. I pray that you would drive the distractions of today out of our minds so that we can just focus on you and your son. It's in his name we pray. So right here in chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of Passover, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The final hours are before him. Literally hours. Hours away from his death. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, pause here. All right, bringing in some fans. Had a room full of fans here already, I thought. That does help. I can feel it already. Um, they're having supper. And uh, most uh, scholars and Bible teachers would suggest that this is not simply the last supper, but Jesus's last Passover meal. And I would argue that it's not a Passover at all, that the Passover was still to come. Verse Verse 1 says, now before the Passover feast, um, this is the preparation day that they were finishing up. And uh, there's other evidences in this chapter that would suggest that. But that part is irrelevant. They're in what would be called um, in Roman times the triclinium, which was a dining room that had um, a long, narrow table that was very low. And there was usually three or four benches around it, and each bench would seat three or four people. And they were kind of like couches um, with big pillows on these benches, and they would kind of lean over on the left side and recline at this table and eat with their uh, right hand. 
as they're leaning on their left elbow. And uh, so that's the picture that's in, in view here, okay, is the triclinium room. So Jesus rose, verse 4, after supper, or from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now there is a practical aspect to what he's doing here. They did a lot of walking back then, and they did it either barefoot or with very uh, rudimentary sandals, and so their feet got quite filthy all the time, and uh, it was normally the lowest servant's responsibility in a household to wash the feet of guests or the youngest female child in the household. And yet here, the Lord and the master of this feast, and the master of all, is deliberately taking the place of a servant, the lowest servant, as a matter of fact. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So Peter raises a protest as Peter is wont to do. But Peter's statement reflects um, all of the problems that are resident in the upper room that evening. There was a lot going on. Luke 22 records that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The person that would sit on the right side of the host was sitting in the seat of honor. And the person who was sitting to the left of the host was considered an honored guest of the host. So both the left and the right were cherished positions. And here they're disputing about who is the greatest, who's going to be able to sit on the right and the left of the master. Verse 7, and Jesus answered Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash uh, wash you, you have no share with me. So, Peter may have been a little a little hurt, a little angry that he's not sitting in one of the honored places next to Jesus, which we'll see in, in a moment that he's not. But in any case, Peter's saying that you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part in me. That's very significant, right? Jesus himself washes away our sin. 
We can't do it ourselves. We can't ever be clean enough. Religion wants to put all sorts of trappings and requirements on salvation, whether it's uh, requiring you to take communion and follow other um, elements of uh, salvation according to a church um, dogma or throwing a virgin in a in a uh, volcano you know anything in between is man's attempt to satisfy an angry god so that he will find satisfaction in the individual i can do it myself and yet jesus says to peter if i don't wash you you'll have no part in me it's not insignificant that he's saying this Peter shows a few things about himself here, but also about ourselves. He he demonstrates a lack of unquestioning submission, right? You shall never wash my feet. I'm not going to submit to that. Thinking that Jesus is the master and I am not going to let the master wash I'm going to wash myself if there isn't anybody else to do it, right? You must not do this for me. I can do it myself. And that is, of course, what many in the world want to do, clean themselves up before they will even consider approaching God. Peter reveals his focus on the physical right? Not the spiritual. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen people who were focused on the physical things, and yet Jesus pulled them into the spiritual realm to let them see what it really means in the Old Testament and to see what God's intent was in having physical um, interactions and whatnot and the spiritualness that they point to. Peter says in verse 9, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hand and my my head and my hands. Not just my feet, but if you're going to wash me, then you're going to wash the rest of me too. And uh, he's focusing on the physical and not on the spiritual. And then the third thing that um, we all suffer from from time to time and sometimes more so than others is a misunderstanding of divine purpose. There's a purpose that God does things. And we, we probably all have friends and we may have said it for sell, uh, ourselves that um, everything happens for a reason. Um, we kind of forget that perhaps God is the author of that reason and that he is the one who has laid out the specs for why things are happening or why he's doing things in a particular way. And certainly Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples are right there. We'll continue in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So there's a divine purpose that Jesus has in mind beyond this um, act of washing the disciples' feet. We have these same issues, all of us, slow to submit to the Lord, focusing on physical things around us and not looking beyond at the spiritual things and often misunderstanding God's purpose in what's going on around us. Or even that he has a purpose. We just look at our circumstance or the circumstance of the world and say, oh man, it's going to hell in a handbasket. And yet it's all by God's divine will that things happen. So the disciples need, just like Nicodemus's need was salvation. And their need would be taken care of in a few hours at Calvary. Just about 24 hours or less. Our need that we need on a daily basis of cleansing would be provided along the way. But the overwhelming lesson here is found in Jesus's example and his charge to minister in humility to one another. Let's look at that. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, Jesus is not suggesting uh, or adding another uh, ordinance for the church here, like baptism. It's not that we are to uh, wash each other's feet each day we meet or what not this isn't about washing feet it is a picture that jesus is portraying of uh loving one another in humility and in service to one another verse 15 for i have given you an example that you also should do just as i have done to you right here's Foot washing as the example of Christian service within the body of Christ. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a service, I'm sorry, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you knew Uh, know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The master has become the minister. And he's expecting that the 
disciples as they move forward into leadership positions in his body after he's given his Holy Spirit. Now you can kind of look around that room in your mind's eye and from a strictly human perspective, this room can seem to be very depressing, at least it does to me. After years and years of association with Jesus in his public ministry, at least three, probably three and a half years in ministry with all of these fellows in very close, intimate fellowship with them on a daily basis, following hundreds of hours of personal instruction at the hands of the God-man Jesus, after they've witnessing his triumphant interaction with Israel's prophetic feasts, proclaiming to be the fullness of these feasts and proclaiming himself to be Messiah, the anointed one of God, and in fact, God himself, in spite of all of the privileges that, that they enjoyed at Jesus' side, all the miracles that they watched him do and even participated in doing with him. Jesus' disciples and his closest friends sit down for his last meal, bickering about who is great, and fighting over the seating arrangements at the banquet. So, in spite of his communication to them about what lay ahead. He's been doing that um, in the last several months. They came to this last um, hours of his ministry and his life, and they are divided and they're spiritually in disarray at this point. The upper room issues, though, had been simmering for some time was a mother, bless her, who had her sons in tow and came to Jesus, it's recorded in Matthew 20, before this upper room event ever took place. And she says, say to these two sons of mine, um, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Here's the mother pushing her sons, James and John, to be uh, Jesus, declared to be Jesus's favorite and uh, have a special place with him in his kingdom. And in the next breath in, in verse uh, 24, and then or when the 10 heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So there is discord about their place in Jesus's, um, uh, his cabinet, if you will, uh, even uh, months and months before. Peter previously had voiced some concern, personal concern as well, in Matthew 19, in verse 27. He says to Jesus, see, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Right? What's in it for us, Jesus, when the dust settles and you're gone like you've been talking about? What will we have to show for our devotion? You don't even have a retirement plan. 
That's in Peter's mind. And right here in the upper room, there was a controversy over who's going to sit next to Jesus. My granddaughters fight about that. They're less than 11 years old. Who's going to sit next to grandpa? Who's going to sit next to grandma? Well, just the day before, we're going to shift gears here. Just the day before, Judas had already raised his heel against his master by striking a bargain with the very men who had plotted his master's death. He went to them. They didn't come to him. Matthew 26 and verse 14 records, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So can you... Can you comprehend the confusion and the dismay that the other 11 are having when Jesus makes reference to Psalm 21, uh, Psalms 41 coming up here? uh, Judas knew, but the rest didn't. Verse 18. I am not speaking. Well, we'll, we'll finish with 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I am not speaking of to uh, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling this uh, telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Taking my head a little time to get wrapped around this. Back in chapter 12, Jesus stated that whoever accepts the Son accepts the Father who sent him, and vice versa. If you truly accept God, then you accept Jesus. Those are inseparable. Now he's adding something to this equation. Whoever accepts the one he sends, that is the believer. The ones he's he's called out of the world to send them to be his ambassadors back into the world. Whoever accepts the believer also accepts the son and the one who is who sent the son, the father. The, the world can't accept a believer in Christ Jesus without believing in Christ Jesus. We can all have relations and friendships and um uh, some kind of genteel attitude toward one another out in the world, uh, even if they're not believers. However, they will um, not accept who we are 
in Christ Jesus, and therefore they are rejecting Christ Jesus. But if they accept us, who we are identified with Christ Jesus, then they've already accepted Christ Jesus. It's a hard concept. Jesus is teaching them some hard stuff here, right? This is so important. We cannot accept um, our position or understand our position as sons and daughters of God the Father. We can't take that lightly. It's it's very deep, very difficult um, sometimes to understand. But it's important that we understand that we can't cherry pick who we're going to accept in the body of Christ. That's Christ's work, right? Whoever receives the one I sent receives me. And the one who sent me also. So let's continue on. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Guys, I can't hold it in any longer. One of you is going to betray me, turn me over. Continuing, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. It obviously wasn't Judas in their minds. It could have been any one of them. They didn't know who it was. Judas didn't stand out amongst them. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that would be John, was reclining at the table at Jesus's side, this would be at his right side, because Jesus is leaning on his left side, his left elbow. He was reclining at the table at Jesus's side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus to whom he was speaking. So Simon was not sitting on the left. He wouldn't have been able to see John. John's looking across the table or at one of the corners or somewhere over there. And Peter says, ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. Right? So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and to him said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So Peter gestures to John. Hey, John, ask him who it is, right? John asks him, and Jesus identifies who would betray him and tells him, do it quickly. Now, 
No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. They're asking who it is. And Jesus says, the one who I hand this bread to after I've dipped it. And he hands it to Judas. And they still are not getting what's going on here. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. There's a little piece of detail that's important, right? Jesus says, make it quick. Judas was a trusted member of Team Jesus. He was the one who kept the checkbook, kept all of the money, and made no account for it. So there's some evidences in here that I just feel obliged to bring up. Again, why I don't believe this is an actual Passover Seder that was the last meal. Okay, the first one comes in verse in verse one, where before the feast, and now we're seeing that some of them thought that Judas was uh, Jesus was telling Judas to go out and buy the stuff necessary for the feast. They were just finishing the feast, weren't they? No, this is, this is um, the day before the 14th of Nizon. And when Judas goes out, it was night. That is the change from Thursday, the 13th of Nizon, into Friday, the 14th of Nizon which was the day of the Passover. So the Passover feast was still forward. And in fact, Jesus was crucified at the same hour as the earth. He died, gave up his spirit at the same time, at the same hour as the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. But I digress. Let's move on. Darkness has fallen by now. So the hour is drawing even closer. There's less than 24 hours before Jesus would be dead and buried in the tomb, resting, having been declared our sin by God. Verse 31, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. It's going to happen quickly. Remember, Jesus had just previously prayed uh, that the Father would be glorified. In fact, he made that prayer so that others around him would be able to hear the voice of God. Well, the time has come, and within this same 24-hour period that is uh, right at the beginning, Jesus will be executed, will give himself as the perfect sacrifice for all of mankind, and he will bring glory thereby unto the Father and unto himself as well 
since he is, in fact, God incarnate. Verse 33, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have, uh, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is hugely important for the church today. Jesus is concerned that they're going to fracture as soon as he is gone, right? They've been arguing about who's the greatest, about who gets to sit next to Jesus. There's other um, issues amongst the inner circle, I'm sure, and he pulls their attention away from themselves and their circumstance and places it onto each other. And he says, a new command I give you that you love one another. Now consider this. What is the greatest commandment? Leave your fingers in John chapter 13 and turn over to Matthew and chapter 22. Matthew 22, Jesus is posed with that question about the greatest commandment. And I'll pick it up in verse 36, 2236 of Matthew's gospel. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Some would say the greatest commandment. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Now, pay close attention. You and I present here um, were never under the Torah as Gentiles. In the church, we're not under the Torah. In fact, Paul even points out that the purpose of the law was to draw us toward God in his Savior and to expose our sin, right? These Two commands are deeply precious commands to God. They are the essence of who he is. And we should love God with all of our heart, etc. And we should love our neighbor. But just like every other command in the Torah our failure in doing so is going to expose our sin. So praise God that when he sees 
the believer, when he sees you or he sees me, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness because Jesus is our righteousness. We can't make ourselves righteous before the law or in the law before God. God sees us as dead to sin. And Paul says, reckon yourself that way. See yourself that way and live your life that way as dead to sin, because that's how God sees you. So living other than that way is fighting against how God sees you. So here Jesus is giving them something brand new, right? It's the foundation of his bride, the church. A new command to love the brethren, love one another. This is not just a command to love, but it's also a command of who to love and how you should love them, right? Love one another just as I have loved you. How did he love them? He demonstrated that he was the minister, even though he was the master, and washed their feet. He was the lowest, put himself in that position unconditionally, completely, and sacrificially loving his companions. That is the way Jesus says that the world will see him. By loving one another, then people will know that you are my disciples. They will see Jesus when the church loves one another. Not when we go out and do good things in the community, which we are called to do. We are his ambassadors going forth for him, and we are called to do those things. But they won't see Jesus in those things, first and foremost. They will see Jesus when the church loves one another. When believers love one another, this is for the church It's an internal focus that we need to um, have first before we can even go outside and have an external focus and love our neighbor. We need to be um, loving within our house first, and that will spill out into our attitude and how we love everybody else, right? Very deeply important. But our the 11 listen. Let's look at verse 36. Back in John chapter 13. Pick it up in 36. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Wait a minute. Peter just ignored Love one another, you guys who are arguing about who's the greatest and who's going to sit next to me. Love one another as I have loved you. Peter, being Peter, wants to think back. You said you're going somewhere. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, 
why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus's focus is love one another. Because I'm leaving, and I want you to be able to have that close fellowship so that people can see me through your fellowship. See Peter's physical focus. He's focused on the here and now. And wait, the future's coming up and you're going to be gone. Where are you going? I want to go with you. I'll lay down my life for you. He never acknowledges once this new command that Jesus has given. There is a 500-pound gorilla in that room that is ignored completely by Peter and by the rest of the 11. And Jesus's answer to Peter is like ripping his heart out and showing it to him. Jesus answered in verse 38, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Wow. Before we berate Peter, though, because he has some kind of a yellow streak and he's going to run rather than allow himself to be um, identified as a believer in Christ. Matthew gives us a little bit more of what Jesus's words there in the upper room. In Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 13 here. He's applying it to Peter and the rest of the 11, but we can't ignore the fact that we share in the human failings along with these guys. Each one of us, our human sin nature is self-focused, exposing our personal failures and rebellions against God. Each of us would have abandoned him as well, and maybe we have from time to time in our life already. Think for a moment about what they asked the Lord, their master. They asked to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Right? They sought prestige. They asked, uh, or, or an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. They wanted to know who was going to be the greatest. They wanted power to be in that position, the greatest uh, in Jesus's kingdom. We left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And they wanted compensation, power, prestige, and compensation. Each of these has been sought by all men and women of all time, right? In the eyes of the world, these things are natural and expected and commendable. 
and you know you're the alpha male or the alpha female in your world and you strive for those things and people look up to you because you have attained power and prestige and you have a good retirement package or a good monthly salary or whatever right in the eyes of the world all of these things are good and the 11 exhibited them all and certainly we have in our own ways the 11 were honorable men pursuing honorable ends don't get me wrong and they had a human nature and that includes the fear of being arrested or having your liberty suspended and the opportunity to either fight or flight fight or flee and they chose to flee all of them it's inherent in the human trait while the world may see their actions as typical and even commendable i think we can all agree that these sorts of objectives are not worthy of men and women moving in the sphere of the holy spirit now the trouble with these 11 right here right now is they're one feast away from total spiritual fulfillment we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that we are made of better spiritual stock than the 11 were right we are uh, given the position of a fly on the wall in this intimate discussion that Jesus is giving to his uh, closest friends who are going to establish his church for him. We're given this intimate look, right? And we can see their shortcomings on display. We can see our own if we are to evaluate ourselves, but we can begin to appreciate the teaching that is about to take place in the next few chapters. What we would be like without the Holy Spirit in us. These men do not have the Holy Spirit in them. That mattered. Last Sunday, Dave and I were talking about how thankful we are that we are living now in this age and not in a previous age. Uh, during the church age, when we have the Holy Spirit resident in us, and that it, he illuminates our minds to the word, and to the truth, and to the Son. And uh, it seals us until Jesus returns. There's so many benefits that we have right now that the 11 at this moment did not have in the upper room up until now and for about the next two months almost the holy spirit has not been given and is not resident in these men and so they're still identified with fallen adam they don't have the holy spirit resident in them which identifies and testifies with their spirit there that they are identified with the risen and glorified Christ. So when I say they are one feast away from 
total spiritual fulfillment. What do I mean? I mean Pentecost. John has given us all sorts of events and uh, little pieces of evidence and witness statements and testimonies throughout his gospel that are focused around each of the other six feasts and in, including Hanukkah, which is not one of the prescribed feasts. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment or I bring fullness to all of these. But there hasn't been any discussion yet of Pentecost. And John does not include that in his gospel. The Holy Spirit was given and that changed everything. So we have to look at what's going on in the upper room here through a lens of no Holy Spirit given. That These men have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And even though they have been called out by God for this special purpose coming up. So let's finish this up. We can all have a particular takeaway from this um, first look at the Jesus's last supper in the upper room. There's a couple more chapters that um, continue it, but I want you to look back at verse 34, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word love here is the Greek word agapeo. It's the agape love. We want to kind of say it's unconditional, but it's really more than just unconditional love. It's an active love. It's the love that the father has for the son. It's used throughout the gospels for that purpose. It's the love that God has for all believers is that active um, love that is so precious beyond any imaginable other kind of love in the Greek language. Likewise, it's the active, unconditional love that all who believe are to have for one another. And for our neighbor, and even for our enemy. Jesus talked about loving your enemy in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all the same love. It's not a brotherly love. It's not any other kind of love other than an active love that's the same um, potency as God has for his son. Now, Jesus, this is so important, verses 34 and 35, especially verse 34, this new commandment. And the guys haven't gotten it yet. Jesus is going to repeat it a couple more times during the upper room. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his first epistle, his first letter, he's going to write about that as what are the commands of Christ? To believe in him and to love one another. And we're, we'll study that when we down there but until the holy spirit is given 
this new command is a 500-pound gorilla in the room, uh, in the upper room with the disciples. And all I can say to that is, oofda. I would have been there with them going, where are you going? I got my good sandals on. We can get there. All right. More on the upper room the next time we meet. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can't tell you enough how precious you are to us, how precious your son is to us, that he would willingly lay down his life only to take it up again on our behalf. How precious your spirit is that indwells us and illuminates our hearts and our minds and seals us until that time when you tell your son to return for us. Lord, as we go out this week, I pray that you would help us to reflect on what Jesus told the disciples to love one another. As he had just demonstrated for three plus years and how he had demonstrated in the, in the minutes before when he washed their feet. Lord, help us to wash each other's. It's in Jesus' great and glorious name we pray.